0: Well, our church may be between pastors, trusting God to raise up a pastor, but he sure has provided in stunning ways in our worship ministry, hasn't he? We're thankful to the Lord for your leadership, Pastor Ricky. Laura and I have lived in New Orleans for six years and been members of this church during that time. My name's Adam Harwood. Laura's back there with uh, two of our kids. Uh, We're in the Simon's Bible study class, Laid Simon. Our four children have been involved in the children's ministry and youth ministry here. I had the privilege of baptizing each one of them in this baptistry, and Laura and I are uh, blessed to be part of this faith community. Like you, I'm praying that God would raise up a wise and uh, spirit-filled pastor to lead this church, and in the meantime, people are supplying the pulpit and you're stuck with me this morning but it's my honor and my privilege uh, to share the message this morning last week taylor introduced the book of judges by locating the story within the larger biblical story you may remember that the book of judges occurred after the events of the exodus and the conquest in canaan and before the kings beginning with saul God established a series of covenants with his people. Taylor mentioned four of those covenants. The covenants obligated the people of God to act in certain ways. Specifically, don't make covenants with other nations and don't worship their gods and destroy the altars to other gods. And the Israelites failed on all of those counts. They disobeyed on all of those points. And the angel of the Lord explained that Because of their disobedience to the covenant, God would leave other nations in the land and those gods would become a snare to them. Verses 6 through 10 of chapter 2 reveal that during Joshua's lifetime, the Israelites served God. But the next generation arose, and they did not know God or his acts for the Israelites. And because of their sinful acts, God judged them by giving them over to those invaders, just like he had promised. To introduce today's text, I have a brief video for you. This is from a series called The Bible Project, which I heartily recommend to you. Uh, This will be the first three minutes of the video. And you can find them for free online, just Google uh, The Bible Project, they're on YouTube. Each video explains a book of the Bible or a biblical theme from a Christian perspective, a conservative Christian perspective, and, uh, and so let's, uh, let's begin with this video.
1: The Book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the Promised Land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future, and you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges, and the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter one gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here.
0: This, is, uh, this video series is called The Bible Project. So, Judges 1 and 2 record an incomplete conquest of the land. The Israelites coexisted with the Canaanites and began to adopt their ways, like the video explained. And when that happened, God gave them over to be invaded and oppressed. And then when they finally cried out in repentance, God raised up a judge who would be a military leader and they would experience peace. Before we read our text, which will begin in Judges chapter 2, verse 16, recall that the word judge is used differently in this portion of the Bible than we use the word today. Uh, Normally, when we use the word judge, we think of someone in a black robe who's presiding over a court. We might think of someone, do you recognize this face? If you're 30 or older, you probably will. This is Judge Wapner from the 1980s reality TV show. He has been replaced for the next generation by Judge Judy, who is in her 23rd year of syndication. Someone told me recently that uh, she makes as much money each year as LeBron James. I don't know if that's true, but if you're in syndication for two decades, that's very possible. Um, uh, This is not the kind of judge we're talking about. This is also not Supreme Court judges. This is a picture of our current Supreme Court, and we're also not talking about this judge, Judge Barry Ash of the Eastern (laughs) District of Louisiana. Isn't that an impressive photo? Judge Ash, are you here this morning? He's at a judges' conference. He might not be here because I mentioned to him that I might just show his picture. (laughs) But in the book of Judges, the word judge refers to someone very different. This was a a military and religious leader. Someone who was raised up by God to deliver the people. And so a judge would have looked more like this. Or a judge from the period uh, like this. These are uh, depictions from National Geographic and History Channel when they did series on the Bible. So the book tells the story of 12 judges people who were anointed by God to deliver the people uh, from invading nations. And as we'll see in future sermons, just because they were judges and just because they were raised up by God and delivered people didn't mean they always made good choices. Judges chapter 2. Will you look with me in your scripture? And the NIV text is up on the screen as I begin reading. Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived." for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, "'Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors,' And has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had no previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal-Hermon to Labo-Hamath, They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. What we see in these verses is what has been called the sin cycle. It was illustrated in the video with this picture. This is the sin cycle. And this pattern is going to be repeated in Judges chapter 3 through chapter 16 in a series of cycles. The pattern begins when Israel falls into sin, which includes idolatry. Idolatry is elevating any created thing to the point of the creator. Are we looking for a picture? (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, It'll come up in a moment. But uh, this is a sin cycle. It begins with the sin of Israel against the Lord. And the scripture will say, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the key phrase that will show up repeatedly to introduce the major stories of the Judges. Uh, Next, God would send oppression through an invading nation. Yes, he would send an invading nation as judgment to the people. Scripture will say something like this, the Lord sold them into the hands of, and then named the nation, and then named the number of years. We see that, for example, in chapter 3, verse 8. And when things get bad enough, finally people drop to their knees. And they ask God for forgiveness. They give genuine repentance, and scripture will say, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord. We see that in chapter three, verse nine. And then deliverance. In response to their crying out, God who was and is so patient with people will raise up a deliverer, one of these judges, Scripture will say, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer and then name the deliverer and then say, who saved them? And we see that in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And usually there's a statement that they experience peace for a certain number of years in the land, and then they sin again. And that's the cycle. So we see this cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, and peace in the stories Of the first six judges listed in this chart, in this chart on the left side we see the invading army: uh, Mesopotamia, Moab, Canaan, Midian, Ammon, and Philistia. And then in the next uh, column, the number of years of bondage is. as uh, as brief as seven years, but as long as 40 years for some of them. And then the judge that God raised up, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. And then the period of time that there was deliverance and rest, as short as six years, but in some instances, as long as 40 or even 80 years. So we're talking about generational peace or generational judgment. And then the scripture location where you can read the story. The book also mentions six other judges with less detail in their stories. None of the judges, again, are perfect, but they were the ones that God used to bring deliverance in this cycle. So what does this cycle of of sin 3,200 years ago have to do with us in 2019? Why does it matter? I have three observations that I pulled from the text that we read and the first observation is this every generation needs to learn to follow and trust God every generation needs to learn to follow and trust God none of us are born with this information we don't come into this world knowing how to follow God we don't come into this world knowing really anything and so we are we are taught things and uh, we have parents or family that teach us many different things in life. They might teach you music. They might teach you a sport. They may teach you how to fish, how to hunt, how to drive a car. There are a lot of things that need to be passed on. Some things are passed on that are cultural loves. For example, Star Wars. Maybe some of you watched Star Wars when you were a kid in the 1970s or 1980s, and then when uh, this was reintroduced by George Lucas to another generation. You had a chance to teach another generation a love for this movie or, or take them with you. Um, and so, uh, so we see and Avengers. Stan Lee did the same thing. I played with, some people call them dolls. I prefer to call them action figures. <laughs> little Captain America about this big. Thor, you could actually brush his hair, had real hair and a Thor hammer, I'd play with those in the bathtub or outside, sometimes they'd get blown up or run over. And, uh, and now the movies are coming out again, introduced to a new generation. And all of that is, is, um, makes perfect sense, we pass on things. But the most important thing that we can pass on to the next generation is how to follow God, how to know God, how to love him, how to submit to him, spending time in scripture, spending time in prayer, gathering together on a regular basis with his people, serving others in his name. That's the most important thing that we can pass on to the next generation. But tragically, that didn't happen in this storyline. Recall that during the days of Joshua, people were following the Lord. And then they moved away from that. Uh, Verse 17, for example. Chapter 2, verse 17 says... They quickly turned away from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. You see that? They quickly turned away. Their ancestors, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents had been faithful to the Lord and to his covenant. And they turned away from that. Every generation is responsible to God, not only to teach the next generation, but to God. Notice how that that sin cycle didn't happen in three days. It wasn't sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance in a three-day cycle. It was generational. 20 years of judgment before there was finally deliverance. 40 years of peace before God finally brought judgment. So it's true that we can experience this in in a micro way in our life, in a small way because we certainly do experience God's judgment, his loving judgment that could bring us to repentance. And when we repent, he will deliver us. But it's also true that what we see here is this large scale generational sin cycle. So we all We all have this responsibility for the next generation, and we're learning from and passing things on to the next generation. So let me ask who in your past followed God in a way that you could imitate? Who are your godly examples? Who modeled for you how to love God and how to love other people? Who modeled Jesus for you? Maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a grandparent, maybe it was a College minister, a youth minister. I was blessed to have many godly examples in and around my life. One of them was named is named Charles Lillard. Charles was the Baptist Collegiate Ministries director at the University of Central Oklahoma, where I went to college in the early nineteen nineties. He is a gentle man with a, a humble servant's heart and salt and pepper hair who led by his actions and his example more than by his words. He incarnated for me the traits of Jesus as a loving shepherd who cared for people. So who was that person in your life? Who is that person in your life that you're learning from? And if you don't have a person you can point to, ask God to raise someone up. If you don't have a model for, like, for, for someone like that, uh, how to follow the Lord, ask God to raise up that person in this church or in your Bible study group. Maybe that person is in your care effect ministry or, or in your workplace. Ask God to raise that person up for you. And if you're an adult, you are that person to someone else. You may not even realize it. You say, I'm not a, I'm not a model. I'm not a pastor, I'm just a school teacher, I'm just a banker, I'm just a... If, if you're here, you're viewed as a follower of Jesus. Right? So you are a model for someone else in the next generation. Every generation needs to learn to follow and trust God. Second observation is this. Uh, God acts in the world relating and responding to our actions. What do I mean by that? In chapter 2, verse 16, God raised up a judge. Why is that? Verse 18 tells us. Verse 18 says, he relented because of their groaning. The Israelites were groaning. Like they groaned after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Listen to Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Same concept. In Judges 2.18, the Lord relented because of their groaning. The word behind relented has the idea of, of a deep breath. It's as if the Lord said said this. (sighs) He relented. He relented because of their groaning. The English Standard Version translates the verse, the Lord was moved to pity. He was moved to pity. The Hebrew word can mean to comfort or console oneself or one another or to relent or to regret in the sense that, You're sorry that something happened. The Lord is sorry that they are undergoing this judgment. You say, how can God be sorry about something? The same way he was sorry in Genesis chapter six when he saw the sins of his uh, people that he had created. And scripture says that uh, he regretted making mankind. The same word is used in 1 Samuel chapter 15 after Saul repeatedly disobeyed God. And the Lord said, I regret making him king. Now, don't misunderstand. God is unchanging and unmoving in his character and in his nature. He's always been holy. He always will be holy. He's always been loving. He always will be loving. He is unmoving and unchanging in his character and in his nature. But this text and many other texts say that this unmoving, unchanging God relates and responds to his creation. And that that includes us. He relates and responds to people. God is not a, a fixed, unmoving God, but he relates to his creation, and he expresses emotion, and he responds to our actions. So God saw human sin in response. He said he was sorry he made us. God saw Saul's rebellion. In response, he said he was sorry he made Saul king. And God saw the Israelites suffering under a foreign invader, the invader who was there because of their sin. And in response, God had pity on them, and he sent a deliverer. God acts in the world relating and responding to our actions. Uh, Verses 19 through 21 tell us that God became very angry with Israel over their sin. Um, One indication of his anger is that typically when he refers to Israel, he refers to them as my people. My people, these are my people. But here, he calls them this nation. It's sort of like parents with their kids. My son, you know, when things are going well, it's my son or my daughter. And when they're in trouble, it's this child, and this, and this is exactly the way the Lord is talking about Israel. This nation, God acts in the world relating and responding to our actions. This should motivate us to pray and to live for him. If, if in fact, God responds according to things that happen on this earth, for good and for bad, judging sin, but bringing deliverance when we ask and when we call out to him, that should change my prayer life and that should change the way that I live because there's a loving, holy creator who knows and sees and hears all things and he responds to our groaning according to his will and he responds to our actions. Third observation, and then we will close. Third observation, God sometimes tests his people. God sometimes tests his people. You say, where do you you get that? Three times in six verses, scripture says God tested his people. Chapter two, verse 22, chapter three, verse one, and chapter three, verse four. Now, uh, let me clarify. Testing isn't temptation, A test is different than temptation. God tests us. Satan tempts us. A temptation is an enticement to sin. Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden by the serpent. The goal was to get them to sin. They did. So the serpent won that round. Uh, Satan tempted Jesus in the desert. Satan was wanting the Son to... Um, disobey the father. But he was faithful. He passed that test. Uh, Jesus was sinless, yet he was tempted. Being tempted isn't a sin. How we respond to the temptation is what matters. But James chapter 1 tells us God doesn't tempt anyone, and he's not tempted by sin. God doesn't tempt us, but God does test us. That's how the story of Abraham's call to sacrifice his son Isaac begins. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, the Lord tempted excuse me, (laughs) the Lord tested, the Lord tested Abraham. See how easy it is to confuse the two? (laughs) Genesis 22, verse 1, the Lord tested Abraham. So God doesn't tempt us, entice us to sin, but he does at times test us. You say, well, if God knows everything, including the future and everything about us, why would God test us? The test isn't for God, the test is for us. It's to reveal to us whether or not we will be faithful. And the test for Israel was to reveal whether or not they would be faithful to the covenant. And guess what? They failed. They failed. Israel Israel failed the test because remember, the command was to to be separate repeatedly in Scripture. uh, They are to, to not marry people from other nations, but they gave in, they compromised and they disobeyed God in that. And uh, before you think this is um, xenophobic or racist or something like that, the command was not about the skin color of people or even the nation they were from. The text is clear that the people from the other nations worshiped other gods. God had a desire for his people to remain faithful to him. And he knew that if Israelite men began marrying women from other nations who worshiped other gods, then in their household, they would give up faithfulness to God and they would begin worshiping these other gods. And God was right. That's exactly what happened. When Israel let down their guard and began marrying people from other nations, they adopted those practices, including worshiping other gods. And that's one way that they broke the covenant. We see in, in three verbs in the last two verses of the text how they failed. Uh, chapter three, verses five and six. They lived among the nations, they took their daughters and they served their gods. Let me make a point of application for today. Single adults, please look at me. Single adults in the room, whatever your age. Followers of Jesus are only to marry followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus are only to marry followers of Jesus. You say, where do you get that? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 states it in the New Testament, but the concept is found in our text. Followers of the Lord, Yahweh, were to remain faithful to the Lord and not marry people who worshiped other gods, who weren't already faithful to the Lord. You say, um, Uh, let me extend this a little bit further and say that a reasonable application of this is that that means followers of Jesus shouldn't date people who aren't followers of Jesus. You say, well, now you're meddling because you're talking about my personal life. The people that we marry are drawn from a pool of people that we have dated, right? So you're not going to marry someone that you haven't dated, right? So... So if you're going to date someone, it should be a follower of Jesus because um, believers should only marry people who are already believers. And you say, well, well, what if, um, what if I was an unbeliever and then I got married to an unbeliever and then I came to faith in Christ? Now what do I do? Great question. Stay in your marriage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Paul deals with that specifically. So this isn't saying abandon your marriage if you're married to an unbeliever. But it's saying if you are an unbeliever, there's a limited pool of people that you you can draw from. People who are already following the Lord. All right? Questions, thoughts, objections about that? (laughs) I'm used to teaching in a classroom where I can get feedback. We We don't do that on Sunday morning, do we? And couples, you aren't off the hook either. Because living for Jesus is more than who you marry. It certainly includes who you marry but this extends far beyond who you marry. It's about your lifestyle. God calls us to a life of holiness, separation, dedication to him. And as the video illustrated, uh, the people of God were called to be a holy people and then they became a Canaanite people. They, because of their compromise, because of letting down their guard, they became like the other nations around them. God desires his people, his church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ bought by his blood to be holy and distinct. This isn't about legalism, this isn't we think we're better than other people, this is uh, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are transformed people and we are to be salt and light and uh, share Jesus with the world. Conclusion, in fact, um, let me have you stand because we're just about to do the invitation and just um, in conclusion, this sin cycle, this story from 3,200 years ago, what this has to do with us today is that there, were a, there was a compromising people, these Israelites who broke the covenant, this compromising people, and they were delivered by imperfect judges. God would raise them up and bring them victory, but it lasted temporarily it seemed like God needed to save them from themselves. And you know what, the same is true today. God needs to save us from ourselves. If I'll just be honest with you, I'm a wreck and so are you, even as followers of Jesus. We're just, we're a, we're a holy mess in so many ways. Uh, who or what is our hope? The Lord didn't leave us in our hopeless and helpless situation. God, by his grace, fills us with his spirit He gives us his word. He surrounds us with other believers so that we can stumble heavenward, following Jesus. God God can bring us to a life of holiness. God can bring us uh, to himself. 1,200 years after the episode in the book of Judges, uh, the perfect judge is revealed. The promised one, Jesus, who gave his life Uh, to reveal the Father, to teach us about the Father, to teach us about the kingdom of God, and ultimately to give his life as a sacrifice for our sin and then be raised by the power of God and then send the Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us to be faithful witnesses of Jesus. Let me invite you during this time of response that if you have never trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, that is your greatest need doesn't matter if you're single, married, younger, older, employed, unemployed, your greatest need is to have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. For the rest of us who are followers of Jesus, if you have already trusted Christ, are you living for him? Are you aware that every generation needs to learn how to follow God? Uh, This next generation didn't have the benefit of some of the godly teachers and mentors that you had in your life. Are you investing in the next generation, your kids or someone else's kids or kids in the neighborhood? And are you aware that God responds to our actions? He watches, he sees, he knows, he loves, but he responds to our actions, good and bad in this world. And he does bring testing on his people to reveal our faithfulness to him. So in this time of response, if you need to come to faith in Christ, if you have questions about that, if you want to make a decision about being baptized, joining the church, or have one of the pastors pray with you, would you come now as we sing this morning?